Hi there, my name is David Young, and I've built this podcast for all of us photographers looking for some extra inspiration. Every Friday, I interview local photographers about the how and the why behind their projects, and at the end of each episode, I add a thought or a challenge for both of us to consider as we continue our pursuit of awesome photography. You can help me keep this project growing by sharing this podcast with your photo-loving friends and by subscribing and leaving a review or a rating on your podcast platform of choice. I've also recently set up a Patreon account for those of you with the ability and interest to keep this project up and running financially. Please check out the link in the show notes. Ultimately, the goal is to stir up conversation and thoughtfulness about photography as a practice, and I wanted to start each episode with a thank you. Your attention and focus on these artists and these conversations help the community at large keep growing. So, without further ado, welcome to my viewfinder. Like, what is your... Uh, history with photography itself like what did you study like where who are you Jen who am I uh listen I love photography more importantly I love art I grew up in a home with a lot of art and I've carried that through you know I have a deep respect for photography but it's not my formal type of study I studied public relations at Mount Royal University then college and you know was a you know pretty mediocre student but loved being in PR and then I you know, worked in, I wanted to go into politics. That was my whole goal. I've wanted to be in politics since I was four years old. <laughs> yeah, you can ask me all about my love for Ronald Reagan, um, it, which now shapes how I look for a man. That's the other half of that story. Yikes. Um, and then, you know, after a little bit in private practice, I thought, you know, I think we really got to turn it up. I felt like I'm always, I'm always perpetually in an existential crisis about my life. I really was fundamentally raised to believe that, you know, you don't create your goals, goals and dreams find you and you as the host have to deliver a return on investment to that. And so I went to Hopkins and yeah, I was kind of just on fire and really did provocative work there. Wanted to stay in the United States. The U.S. president had a different vision for that. Came back to came back to Canada, really fell in love with this idea of how am I going to make a difference in, in Canada? I, I'm... I'm as big a champion as you're going to get for this country. I love this country. And when I see kind of where we're at with this country, I think mm, our future generation is going to be as in love with it. And then, you know, off to Harvard. And then this summer I'm headed to Oxford at their request. So, you know, I'm just kind of on this. I think my daily meditation, I'm a terrible meditator because people meditate and they ask for calm and they ask for peace and they ask for clarity and they ask for stillness. And I meditate and I'm like, how can I be the best there ever was? <laughs> well, I mean, I think <laughs> if I if I could counter presume uh, from my understanding of meditation, the more constructive one is not asking to be calm, but letting those thoughts work through you. So exactly. you're allowed to think. Exactly. Otherwise, Exa well, it wouldn't work. Well, I think you <laughs> should you should look for. Bound. Like, I mean, look at even my relationship with Kyle. I say to him, I'm going to shoot the entire season of a podcast in four days. And poor Kyle's like, I'm going to have to be medicated to make it through that. And uh, and then, you know, now we ferociously edit and then we drop it. Now, some of that is because I work in the conservative space and there's such a stigma that you have to drop everything all at once. Otherwise, you're so subject to cancel culture. So that's kind of the way that works. But anyway, so that's kind of, that's kind of me. I love, I love art. I'm, I'm hunting this one piece of art and I'm like a dog on a bone. Like I will, I will not quit until I'm satisfied. And I, uh, I can get this, uh, this piece in my home. Uh, okay. Yeah. I mean, just a quick tease. I don't know if Kyle actually listens to these, but when he told me he was working, uh, four days with you, I laughed at him because, uh, that's a lot of recording. And uh, yeah, that's a lot of work. So yeah, it is. It is a ton of work, and I think we never really give Kyle as much credit as we should because, you know, it's subject matter, which I know that part of it he's like, oh, you guys are full of shit, <laughs> and uh, and and yet it's like succession. It's everything, and then he, you you have to turn the editing around, and you know, I'm a terrible like Kyle's always like, like let the warts be in there, and I'm like, no, ah, uh, this 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 this. Um, so he gets editing notes back from me and I'm pretty sure he's like, oh, I'm day drinking. 
I'm gonna have to buy him a lot of pie at, <laughs> at Pie Junkie for sure. I, I miss Pie Junkie. When I have disposable income and we're allowed outdoors, I'm probably gonna eat a snack. Uh, <laughs> My Viewfinder is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network is a program to support Albertan podcasts by connecting us with local businesses and initiatives to keep our stories and our interests at the fore. If you're interested in finding more Albertan podcast content in a wide range of topics, check out their website, albertapodcastnetwork.com, or you can connect with them over social media. They are at albertapodnet on both Instagram and Twitter. Our first sponsor is Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates. Shift showcases the work being done in the province's innovation ecosystem. Everything from health to clean energy. Join hosts Katie Dean and John Hagen as they interview the researchers, entrepreneurs, and businesses that are shifting our perspective about innovation in the province. In their latest episode, their guest is President and CEO of Service Credit Union. They discuss how Service Credit Union has achieved more than a modicum of success under Garth's tenure and has set a tone not only amongst credit unions, but more traditional banking institutions by achieving unprecedented success. Find Shift Podcast by Alberta Innovates on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at shift.albertainnovates.ca. That's shift.albertainnovates.ca. This week, I've asked Jennifer Sanford to join me. While not a professional photographer, Jennifer is a political and PR consultant with her own podcast called Conservative Like Me. I asked her to talk to me because, A, she's been a guest and collaborator on my other podcast, Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine, and she's smart and well-read and B, because she quote-unquote leans to the right politically. And as artists, we need to keep our ears open to the full spectrum of opinions. I think we'll discover today that we're not that different at all. I'm going to ask her about the use of photography and truth-forming, politics and propaganda. We discuss the tension in the recent rise of so-called nationalism, I'm thinking MAGA, for example, and I ask the most important question, what is up with geese? They've been hissing at me on my runs and I'm just tired of their devil-may-care attitude. Protected animal, my ass. Anyways, here's the first part of my discussion with Jen. Well, you know what? I, it's interesting. So you start off in PR, you're in uh -huh. conservative politics, yeah. um, you like art. So I feel like this should work for the photography podcast. Okay. What I'm interested in is uh, photography's position in defining reality or manipulating it or, um, you know, this sort of, in my opinion, idealistic belief that photographs somehow tell us something about reality. And I don't know if in your studies you deal with anything specifically about that and the use of media. Yeah, you know, I, I do. Um, you know, certainly uh, symbols in persuasion um, is is very important to me and, and the use of the use of art more broadly. But even, you know, the use of photographs to, to shape perception. You know, a lot of people think that that conservative governments are really the catalyst of of using, you know, art to present their arguments. But, you know, Democrats have been equally accused of, of, of presenting information in a certain way. You know, I'm interested to see if we're part of an important revolution or evolution, I guess, or maybe just secular iterative experience where I think in the in the 1940s and 1950s, we really saw the use of of art to, to rally cry. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, Uncle Sam wants you. Uh, I'm thinking about Rosie the Riveter. I'm thinking about the the demonstration of of art to to persuade people as a sense of togetherness and how we really don't have that today. And will we see a resurgence of that? Because certainly that mechanism has been the way forward for China, right? I mean, look at their wolf warrior uh, films. Those have been national films that have captured the attention of how China views itself and wants to present itself to the world. So, you know, motion picture branding is a, you know, has a lot of roots in the art world. And I, I'm interested to see if we will see a resurgence of that and how brands participate in that. Yeah, it's interesting when I, and I, I am certainly no uh, historian or academic or scholar or intellectual or uh, have any 
basis of having an opinion about this. But, um, you know, from the onset of photography itself, it has had uh, not just political, but certainly, uh, yeah, uh, it's had a bias. It's controlled by whatever powers that be. And even from the first photographs of wartime in like the 19th century, because they had cameras that couldn't take documentary pictures, they would stage battles and they would stage events. That's right. And it's great that you, you know, I think the 30s and 40s are fascinating because uh, even before World War II, there were depictions of the Great Depression to uh, have nationalists. Absolutely. Right? The, weren't those photographs striking? Right. Think of the photograph of the woman, you know, with her face shielded um, with a sign that says four children for sale and the four children are on the stoop. I mean, those images, I mean, they shaped I think that they 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 had a tremendous political pull because it really went on to shape, you know, um, FDR and how he would go on to politic. And it really shaped, I think, the New Deal, which really I think we'll look back on as one of the most pivotal moments in, in U.S. history. I think had it not been for those striking images of of men in line at the soup kitchen, you know, men with holes in their shoes, really seeing a dilapidated America you know, I don't think it would have pushed the political will in the direction that it did, right? And also, at the same time, the absence of, of photographs. I mean, there's long been held this debate in, in, in U.S. Uh, communications of politics. If there was readily available photographs, would, would FDR have been the president that he was because he was in a wheelchair? And think about now the nature of how presidents are photographed. I mean, we can thank Pete Souza for that would we ever now have a, a president in a wheelchair because you know they have to fit this this one kind of mold of what people expect from their leadership hmm. do you think that from your understanding for example with fdr is that is that a controlled decision you know because there are already photojournalists at that time do you think that the political mechanism has made an active and intentional decision that we are not going to promote him in a physical, um, you know, like in a, in a photograph because he doesn't exude the uh, physical presence of the leader of a, in the grand nation? Or do you think that's you know, just I unavailable? I don't know. I don't know if it was a wag the dog, an early wag the dog moment. I don't know who the control mechanism would have been. I mean, if you think about his portrait, his presidential portrait, he is in the wheelchair, but there is a decision to put a cape around the chair, to conceal the chair. You know, I'm not sure if that would have been from his origin or or a sense that it indicated a lesser position of power. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it was certainly no secret, uh, but we were still in the advent of radio at that time, right? right? I mean, his radio addresses were so poignant. That's one of the things I loved about Ronald Reagan is that the, the communication mechanism still mandated and warranted uh, a tremendous communicator, uh, balanced between scripted and unscripted, which I don't think we've seen since Reagan. Yeah, I don't know. That's a really great question. That's a really great question. Do you think that, I mean, looking at the broad sort of evolution of, uh, it sounds like, let's say American politics, which I'm, uh, actually, I'm just not versed in politics in general, but it seems to me on the outside that the, it's become so chaotic. And certainly with the advent of uh, uh, public photography and now digital photography and social media, uh, there's just a lot of confusion so i mean bringing up sort of the idolatry of a let's say president of the united states uh, or the prime minister of britain and in the last 10 years we had trump and boris johnson and boris johnson's coming out with like bedhead and you know there's candid he photographs always looks and bernie sanders bernie they always sanders, look yeah. like they just got off of a overnight flight and they don't yeah. know where their luggage is yeah so something's changed and and there's always controls of stuff like that because not like uh, that's the candidate and then when they take a a picture for their interviews they've got it all brushed back um do you think i mean what do you think is especially with the pr angle i mean how how has that evolved like what what's going on with the control or the use of imagery is this intentional in your mind i mean this is all conjecture to connect with the so-called new everyman or do you think this is just because we are relying on characters now because we we don't have real leaders. <laughs> well, you're absolutely right that there has been an exceptional transition away from poise and polish. There absolutely has been. And I think it's because there is a visual representation of a certain type of person representing a certain type of inertia. 
like political inertia. I mean, if you look at if you look at like U.S. Congress or even if you look at Parliament in the U.K., they all sort of have a similar look. And if you can come in with another look, you can say, look, I'm actually now a visual representation of something different than what you've experienced. I think maybe they might be capitalizing on a sense of like, we know you're frustrated with the status quo, so I'm not going to sound like it and I'm not going to look like it. There also, I think, to be honest, is the rise of such a high level of male ego there that they don't care what they look like because power is power outside of what it looks like. And I would, I want to judge it really bad, but I just, I'm also just jealous that that is not a, a paradigm that's afforded to women. I mean, like imagine me going forward into the political space and I just have my hair in a ponytail and I don't have any makeup on and my, you know, my clothes are a little bit too big for me. The only criticism that I would receive and would be captured in a photographic space would be this person doesn't have composure and leadership. She can't lead. So there is now like a real gender divide, like name a female politician. Like tell me that Jacinda Ardern can go to work uh, looking like she just, you know, moved from the gym. She's deeply beloved, wildly popular. I think she'll be emblematic, just like Ruth Bader Ginsburg was. But she, th there's still the demands of a, of a persona. So, you know, I think part ego, part I don't give a shit. I like it's. I think that's all part and parcel of it. But I think it is also creating a visual representation of I look different, and I I, I care in a different way. I don't want to represent more of the status quo because we're done with the status quo. I think that would be my my conjecture and opinion on that do you think i mean uh, i was thinking about how my dad told me that with immigrants the first generation that comes in they have to fight for recognition as uh, less than subpar humans but then he says it's harder for the second generation because they then have to sort of and this is my uh, summation but fulfill the ideas that so for example my dad's like he came in 72 koreans are not considered you know normal and he's established himself as a as an architect. My mom was a teacher, but he's like more pressures on me because I can't go and fuck that up. So if I go out and pretend to just be like just loose, and I mean I am, so I'm sure he's disappointed. But you know, there's a lot more pressure. I, you know, and like you said, I'm afforded a lot more leeway as a, as a man. Uh, but you know, so for women, I just was thinking, how many more generations will have to pass? Because we're getting closer to civil equality somewhere, but it's it's such a slow grind. Uh, maybe one day we'll get to have like a female president shows up in track pants and tells everyone to go fuck themselves. But yeah, it's just not. <laughs> yeah. Not, not in my at. lifetime. Yeah, not in my lifetime. And you also forget the the you know the the truths about women is that we have within us a systemic desire to compete. You know, I feel that, uh, you know, and I don't want to speak for all men because there's, if I'm a champion for intersectionality, I can't speak for all men, but I always find that in the, in the, in the more male form, there is a desire to, it's about creating a pecking order, but everybody's in it. I find too often with women, it can be like, there's only one, there can be only one and the rest you know, cannot, cannot be. And I don't know who I hold accountable for that. I'm, I'm thinking I just want to blame the bachelor for that, right? Just think of the amount of television that is consumed, you know, in North America and beyond that has women in competition with one another. And it's vicious and personal and sustained. And, and yet then we want to, we want to try to you know, be all these great things in the political space. And, and it drives me crazy. And you, you even have to look at the iterative nature of, of feminism. Uh, I mean, it, the first iterations of feminism were largely white women talking about creating equality, the Equal Rights Amendment. I mean, we had some diversity in there. Um, but now these these new iterations of, of feminism are about saying, you know, we need to have a, a greater diversity in the voices that speak for women, not one woman, especially not someone like me, a, a, a Caucasian woman or white woman, to speak for all women because our, our lived experiences are still different. The challenge to that is now we're starting to see that competition reemerge. I mean, even if you look in the United States in the in the Women's March, those groups are eating each other alive. Well, how will I want to come because I'm a woman, but I also believe um, that abortion is wrong. Well, you if you are our type of woman, you can't be part of that march then. And if you believe in, you know, that the police does not need to be defunded, then you don't. So we're now seeing that still in our in our waves of feminism. 
And I think it's, I think dialogue is important. I think we're surfacing a lot of issues and that's important. But I also think this, this, this systemic nature of competing with one another until the other person really cannot speak and has, has no voice will harm our ultimate goal of, you know, female and, and women represented um, in, in positions of power in a way that bring other, other women along. Yeah, we'll see how that sounds. That sounds so, you know, tough to, it's tough, it's tough to talk about it, but um, I think it's real. And I think, um, you know, certainly organizers of women's events are encountering this. You know, what I find interesting is, especially with the current rhetoric, is with so much divide and so much, even, yeah, uh, what do you call it? Self-consuming narratives, even within a movement. But then we also have this sort of, uh, this counter movement of this, nationalist and uh, um, domestic so MAGA for example this idea that there's an us and them and you know we need to bring it back to us rather than acknowledge them um, and you brought up this idea of status quo and and we don't necessarily have to talk about how photography itself plays a role but I think just the projection of any image uh, so iconography and and um, um, identification um, it feels to me like it's become so complex and uh, and cannibalistic, really. Do you think that that's something that's preyed on by political parties for personal advantage? Or do you think that's just something that's going yeah, on? Yeah, you know, I think... you. You know, to me, mega is very simple. I um I don't I don't try to complicate what mega is. This is what I see from my own eyes, and and having been in the in the DC environment um, when it was really you know at its full steam ahead, mega represents an important transition in American history. I think that's the way we'll look at it because what it tapped into was a way of saying that a a group of people who had never faced loss needed someone to tell them that that loss was unnecessary. That, um, you know, the industries that you work in, the, you know, the factories and the manufacturing and things that will be taken away by green jobs, green innovation and automation, that they were being heard and that progress would be stopped to ensure that that transition didn't happen. And that when they looked in their communities and realized that they were for the first time and there are many generations a minority in their own community, as we see, you know, rising immigration levels of, and and just generational, um, you know, Spanish-speaking individuals, immigrants from Puerto Rico in the in the coastal states, you know, people coming from other places to experience the American dream, which I certainly would love to be part of, so I can relate. But when they look in their communities and they start to see that they're a minority, you know, that's that's a change to their community that change is it change is a form of loss and to have someone tap into i see the loss that you're going through and rather than having you feel that loss and and navigate and create a new normal and create an engineer a new experience for yourself i will stop it and that's what mega is to me and then you can apply whatever imagery you want onto it that perpetuates, I see you, I hear you, and I feel the value of what you need in a leader. That's what MAGA was. That's what Trump was. And um, and I think, it, I think it really genuinely is that simple. The problem with it now is that the leader that it was needed was a leader that could say, you know, I, I say this about Aaron O'Toole now, we, the conservative movement doesn't need uh, someone who's going to scream at the top of their lungs in the House of Commons. They need someone who's going to hold civility and be a tremendous grief counselor to say, we need to make a pivot. We need to change. We need to come to the center of the political spectrum. It's going to be okay. I still hear you. I see you, but we got to bring you along because if we don't bring you along, you're not going to be part of it. Worse off, you're going to be, you're going to breed resentment. You're going to carry that resentment as a generational gift. And then we're going to have fraction and we're going to have, you know, a lack of capture. So, that's what I'm expecting on, from a conservative movement here in Canada. But in the United States, we've now seen four years of creating winners and losers out of absolutely every issue and much to their detriment, much to the detriment of, of what Biden's going to have to do and much to the detriment of whomever else will be the president in three and a half years. Do you think from a PR standpoint and from a media relations standpoint, is this something that, you know, a conspiratorial approach would be that this is bread, that it's intentionally stirred up to gain some economic or personal uh, victory. Um, but, you know, looking at the entire question we brought up in the 40s, we have Rosie the Riveter, we have uh, 
the, you know, some iconic shots of uh, people in depression. We have, uh, I, can't, I can't even remember all this. Yeah, Uncle Sam and and uh, everything coming out of that. And if we trace the evolution of art through all of the generational changes and, uh, you know, identification, so post-war, and then we got existentialists, we got, uh, I can't remember what the revolution, civil rights movement, the hippies, disco. <laughs> Not to mention uh, through all of that, you have political cartoons. Right. And so where do you think, like, do you think that there's a lot of control and, and interest there by a small power broking minority? Or do you think we're at a stage now where it's just a cacophony of everybody with their own individual interests and nobody even knows what they're talking about? Because when I'm on Twitter, that's how I feel like uh, <laughs> I, I see pictures, I see people talking. It's this echo chamber. Everybody's yelling. Yep. Nobody talks to yeah. each other. Yeah, I you've tapped right into it because I think it's I think it's laziness. I think it's how hard do you want to work? This has always been my thing about the political space and the social space is that the differences that we sh we have between us are actually very small, especially in this country, especially in Canada. The differences between us are 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 millimeters. Like we really are not like we have this whole spectrum to play with, but we're really not that different, right? We're really we're really quite ideologically aligned. But what I'm seeing is is conscious choices being made, and in some cases using art uh, and photography to say, if listen, if I can just make you angry, I can turn you in the direction that I want to go, and if I can make you sad, I can I can engineer the type of response uh, that I want, and I think that is the incredible shortchanging of the electorate. Something that you'll hear me say all the time is that I believe that this country's greatest resources are the intellectual contributions of its citizens. We are a smart population. We have the capability to make smart choices, to have critical thinking skills, to have critical listening skills, and to make decisions that work with us in the highest form of self-efficacy. I think we're, we're shortchanging that self-efficacy when we say, I can get two tweets of information or read a political cartoon and that'll tell me everything that I need to know so I can move on to the next thing. And we're, I think we're seeing in certain cases the political system taking advantage of that. What I want to see is real discourse and real dialogue, especially as we've got to move people from one place to another. I mean, think about the challenges that we have ahead of us. We have real climate challenges. We've got a lot of people living in our coastal cities while sea level rise continues to be a huge issue. I think Canada is going to be ground central for... Uh, human-based climate migration, something that no one's talking about because instead we're talking about what color are you and where are you from and why can't you speak English and I need you to tell me what your Canadian values are. Like we're just so pivoted in the wrong direction because I think political leadership has been derelict in their duty to say, let's have real conversations about exactly what the challenges are ahead. And I think there is an appetite for people to be brought along. I think what we're seeing is the absence of that. People looking for where they belong and because they can't be part of discussions, because they can't engineer these discussions, they're just like, I'm going to say pithy things on social media that either get people riled up or get people thinking I'm really smart. And neither of those things move the goalpost in terms of the, the capability of, of, of Canada and Canadians, in my opinion. Do you think, I mean, just thinking about the migration, it, it's kind of like I was talking to Helen and uh, I t we were talking about how once in a land far, far, in a long, long time ago, there was even an economic surplus in Alberta. And she's like, why didn't they build subways? And I was like, infrastructure is never sexy. Nobody gives a shit about whether they've paved the right road or anything. That's right. I, I read this uh, article about whenever climate change turns America into a desert, uh, Canada does become essentially, potentially a fertile zone instead of a tundra, uh, if right. we survive that event. And uh, <laughs> it is interesting to think about what you brought up, which is that someone in position of power must be aware because, you know, these are fairly intellectual people, we presume, that hold high positions of power, but they do not seem publicly to make decisions that are outside of their two, four or eight year window. And I know, and this is the thing about propaganda, as somebody who's not in politics, I get my information from visual aids as well. So as somebody from uh, the world within it, do you think that's a misrepresentation of leadership? Or do you think that's something that's actually happening right now where politics, they just don't, they don't see past whatever their term is. Um, 
and becomes very mm. personal. Yeah, there there really is a movement toward the right now politician. Uh, we just saw this with Aaron O'Toole at the convention. I wanted him to come out and say, this is the mission and vision of who we are. This is like address the stigma that now associates conservatism. Uh, and instead it's like, here's the five point action plan. And I think we can achieve this by the summer. And we're like, uh, um, I think there's more. Hey, so come on back. I think there's more. I think you got another TED talk in you. I think there's more here. And one of the things that I would love to see a politician do, and this is why I just give wild advice, even to my employer and to the, and to the clients that I've served as a consultant is you have to coalesce people around the plan for today and the vision for tomorrow. Because people need the assurance of, I know what keeps you up awake at night that needs to be addressed in the very short term. I know that you worry about the cost of your everyday life. You know, you worry about your job. I know that you worry about what will be in the immediate future of your kids. I hear that. I know it keeps you up awake at night. But I also know that tomorrow's challenges have to begin to be addressed today, right? We need to put together groups that leverage our best thinking. Um, you know, this is where we're putting resources in, in solving tomorrow's problems. And the political future, you know, the political space really will say, no, we'll just give them today. And then when tomorrow arrives, we'll give them tomorrow. And that's why we see so much turnover of government, right? Like that's why we see like this constant search of, you know, where are we going? Sometimes the role of government is just, you know, can I disappoint people at a rate they can tolerate? Um, you know, you have to have a vision for today and a plan for tomorrow. Um, but you have to obviously say it's sexier than that. That sounds so, it even sounds boring coming out of my mouth and I'm a PR person. But, you know, this is something that I brought as a as a thinking point to my own employer. People listening uh, might know that I work for Ducks Unlimited Canada. And I work for them not because I overtly care about ducks. Like I actually still don't know that much about ducks. But what I do know is that Canadians don't care about ducks but they care about the fact that where these ducks land is the most important biodiversity you know, in the world. And we have to protect that biodiversity. I think that they care about the fact that we've lost 3 billion birds, uh, like 70% of our, of our bird population in the, since 1970. And if we can see a decimation like that of the bird population, what about all the other iconic animals? And of course, like wetlands, right? Like wetlands is the business of Ducks Unlimited. And you know, you preserve and protect wetlands and restore them. And you all you do is suck carbon right into the ground. And for a country that's obsessed with carbon taxation, my God, we talk a lot about the tax and not a lot about the carbon. And that's why I'm part of an organization like that. And and it's frustrating to me that why is it the nonprofit sector that's going to scale these conversations with Canadians? Like, why is it my responsibility to, to tell like award-winning storytelling around sea level rise? Where is the government? Because I think there is an appetite for that, but we've been starved of it for so long, we don't even know we're hungry for it. And I also think it does a great thing to low-hanging fruit, Monday morning, you know, couch quarterbacks who, you know, constantly want to be evaluating things, but providing no new ideas to the table. This is an opportunity for them to start to ask more critically important questions and to participate in raising the the state of, of dialogue and discourse in this country, which I think is paramount to our well-being. I mean, my first thought is ducks are better than geese. I don't like geese. I'm tired of geese. And I think that we should just be done with the no. Uh, and yeah. Well, the, a great a great joke that uh, people like to perpetuate is that um, before uh, earlier in my career, I I worked for uh, for WestJet. I was their national uh, spokesperson and did all their media relations. And then when I went to Ducks Unlimited, people were like, "Well, that makes sense. Like she's gone to work for aircraft's only known predator." <laughs> <laughs> terrible. That's a terrible joke. That's about human safety. <laughs> I I apologize. You know, all of this being said, what is art and media's role in this then? So, for example, um, you know, you're championing discourse, rational, uh, presumably rational, or at least civil discourse, which I, I think is uh, exactly what's missing, at least in the social media sphere. My, my first thought was, you know, people like Dave Suzuki or David Attenborough, Suzuki in particular in Canada is getting, uh, he's been cast aside a little bit from all the work that he did before. Uh, for for whatever um, whatever controversy, I can't even remember. I don't really pay attention. But you know, art is an interesting thing because it comes with the bias of the creator. Um, how, mm. Do you think that there's a way? You know, so you know, with photography in particular, what I choose to take a photo of, how I choose to present it, and who I present it to, 
can immediately become very narrow. I mean, is there a way that so PR or the use of media can be done in, in a in a conversational sense? Or is it automatically by its nature kind of throwing shit at a wall, yelling at somebody, telling somebody they're wrong? I mean, what, what's the feeling in the in the real world? <laughs> well, maybe let me actually isolate that into right into the PR space, because the PR profession or the PR industry has really changed the way in which they look at the use of photographs, right? There has been such a push in the last four years to be about diversity and inclusion. Like, do we check all the boxes in this photograph that I think we've we've stopped really looking at what the photograph represents, right? Like, what are people doing in the photograph? Does the photograph connect with people and does it have meaning? You know, you and I really share this at a, at a fundamental level is that I will I will look at a photograph, especially um, journalistic photos, and I really have a visceral reaction to them. And it frustrates me that we we see photojournalism, you know, continue to be this provocative lens. But then when it translates into public relations where we have provocative messages, the images don't carry over. There's such an incongruence between those two things that is so epically frustrating to me. It's not memorable. We're trying to check boxes. And I think that, you know, I think that that's so to the disadvantage of connecting really meaningful messages with really meaningful photographs. Is that something that's taught? Is that a structured approach? Is it taught? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's a, that's a great question, Dave. I don't, I don't know. I think what we're, what I had hoped I would see is as, as the journalist, as, a, as, a, as the field of journalism continues to be absolutely, you know, decimated. And we see a lot of those journalists coming into the field of public relations. I had sort of thought that that would be an attribute that would come with them that would serve the benefit of the industry as a whole. I'm not sure it did. <laughs> I'm not sure it did. Um, but I also think that it comes down to, you know, adaptive leadership also, you know, sometimes we're so conscious of, of triggering an illicit emotion that we feel we can't then control that we back away from from images that have meaning. I mean, look at after 9-11, you know, Falling Man took, what, 10 years to be publicly viewed and and accepted as a part of the 9-11 narrative because there was a real feeling that it it, it violated these small rules of, of what could be presented and what couldn't. I feel the same way about images from Syria. When I when I see the the photographic work of, of journalists, of correspondents in those areas, I'm struck at the poignance of what's really happening in Syria. I have a I have a photo on my desk of um of two small children crouched in a corner and they can't be older than probably five and three. And he has his hands his, his little hands over top of her ears to protect her from the sound. And the look on their face is gutting. It's gutting. It's, it, it, it raises this question about, you may not be able to identify Syria on a map. You may not understand the military and political and social conflict of Syria. You may not care. But everyone who has a heart for a child would be deeply moved. And then the question becomes, how does that image translate? Then you look at organizations that are doing on-the-ground work with Syria. What do, what do they do with an image like that? Because it's a conversation starter. But you can't put that in any communication medium. You can't put it on a website. You can't put it on a brochure because it does two things. One, the image becomes so repelling that you you have such a visceral reaction that you can't participate in it because we really do we really do repel from images like that because they're so hard to look at. And the second thing is you can be easily accused of disaster capitalism, right? Using those images for gain. And so it really is an important public relations conversation to be having in our profession. I wish we were having it to a greater degree is what do we do with this visual representation? Because you know, we need to see those images and we need to see those images as a, as a mechanism to how we tell stories. So long as the communications profession is seen as, you know, something that is for gain and not something that helps to rise the level of discourse and participate in my larger goal of heightened discourse in this country. I, you know, I think a lot about what we do with those types of images. Look at Vietnam. Look at those images of the end of Vietnam. 
you know, that was such an important emblem of the way in which international or a U.S. conflict could end, right? There's no victory. There were no people kissing in Times Square. There was people running to helicopters as fast as they can and a and a group of, of Vietnamese people being left behind. And those images are, are, are striking and form an important part of how we tell history. I mean, we talk a lot. Okay, now I'm, now I'm taking over, Dave. We talk a lot about um, how history can be retold, but images hold us accountable. They hold us very accountable to history as it existed. And for that reason, you know, I think it's vitally important. As you know, because you've been a guest twice, uh, you know, Kyle and I have this movie podcast, but now that we're doing movies in 1971, we're learning about just how controlled media has been historically. Yes. And so I just read a, an essay, uh, not for the movie, but uh, essentially for prep for this, about uh, an interesting thought, uh, exactly as you bring up. So what happened in Vietnam that we got uh, very anti-war, I don't know, necessarily anti-American, but these uh, these you know visceral images. But in World War II, allies and so-called Axis, they were carpet bombing everybody. I mean, there are a lot of children on fire. There's a lot of just despicable things. I was reading an actor, he was uh, an intelligence officer, and he's got a description of what it was like to walk into one of the first concentration camps. And I almost threw up just reading the text. And I think, like you said, I mean, people weren't ready in, in a sense. I mean, this becomes a judgmental to assume that people are too naive or unable to digest these things. But I mean, if I came to a stranger on the street and asked them if they wanted to look at a picture of uh, human beings piled on top of each other, they were liquefying. I think everybody would say no, mm -hmm. presumably. You know, uh, there's an element of political control in maybe not what the photographer necessarily wants to take a picture of, but what, like you said, what gets disseminated into the public realm? And is there a sense like that there are specific groups that are in control of how that gets put out? I mean, in the old school journalism, it was always the editor of a newspaper would say, well, this is the, I, even if the photographer hated this one image, like this is the one that tells a story that goes along with this text. I go, what's going on recently? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't but even as, know this as story. media becomes as media becomes more partisan, you're starting to see images being selected to fuel that narrative of partisanship. Plus, you know, media consumption is also, you know, a fundamental business now. It's about ratings and viewers and subscribers and, you know, showing them images that they don't want to see, but perhaps they should. You know, that's not good business. That's not them looking at like what is my moral what is my moral obligation to tell the story. They're looking at how can I how can I make this something that people can easily amplify, right? Like you and I might read an article about, you know, what really happened with the liquefaction of of Jews and other groups in World War II and we find it incredibly, you know, provocative and gut-wrenching and you know, a story that's worth being told, especially when we think about like the 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 Uyghurs in China under undergoing an incredible act of of just total genocide. You know, we might think you know this needs to be shared, but you know, people are going to get that and say like, I, I need more Meghan Markle content in my life. I that's where I'm at. And so there's the what should be occurring, and then there's what what is occurring, and then you have partisanship pulled right over top of that as a nice cozy little blanket to tuck them in. But I think it's important to look at how how a political, you mentioned it earlier on Vietnam, how a political environment shapes the imagery out of it. And I think that looking in the United States at World War II versus Vietnam is a, such a great example of that. Because in World War II, it was like, look at the art, like Rosie the Riveter we talked about, you know, Uncle Sam, like all of the like fight, 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 like we need you for your country and send us your medal. And it, it was really about coalescing a national effort of, you know, we've, this happened in Pearl Harbor and we're not going to let this happen in our borders and we're joining the fight and we're going to liberate Europe and look at us go and, 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 and wave our flag. And you see the images really representative of that representative of I'm part of the effort. Vietnam was so not so Vietnam surfaced issues of tremendous inequality. I mean, if you were well to do, you were able to dodge the draft, you were able to get, you know, a letter and, but if you had nothing, and you lived in parts of the country that had nothing, and you were a generation that had nothing, 
you all of a sudden found yourself fighting in the jungle in a country you couldn't identify on a map. These were largely disproportionately young black men. And, you know, the sheer deception and the and the shape of that violence, it was incredibly uncivilized war. And it just felt never ending. And at a certain point, I, you know that, you know, whole collections of people would be sitting around with their rations saying, what is the point of this? I'm not even sure what the ultimate goal is of this. I just want to go home. I want to go home to Mississippi and Louisiana and Georgia and the places, you know, where my, my mom and dad are from and, and try to create a new normal. And when they went home, like, my God, were they ever not served well? I mean, you know, Vietnam veterans represent exactly how America failed its citizens. Uh, and that's just a well-known fact. And you see that manifested in the imagery on the of the faces of these of these men coming home of of pictures now of men uh, with you know veteran you know Vietnam veteran hats on, um, looking you know much older than they really are. And you see the Im the embedding of war correspondents trying very hard to tell these stories to say, you know, let me remind you that no son of a member of the Senate is fighting in Vietnam. And I think those stories help to really coalesce this, this issue of the hippie movement, of, of nonviolence, of people saying, I'm going to go to Washington, I'm going to represent a, a peace and love generation, and I'm going to hold this government to account. So, you know, I, I think that photography has such a great ability and, and photographers, you know, behind it have a great ability to really surface what's what's going on and, and, and tell those stories. I mean, there's no ability now to go back to Vietnam and go, oh, you know, it wasn't that bad and people loved the fight and they were, no, no, you see the images of, you know, the, I love this, that one image of um, the mail, it's just a mailbox and the mailbox is open and there's letters all over the ground and there's a young black man sitting against the mailbox and he's holding his draft letter and the poignantness of what that war was doing to to those segments of the population. I mean, you can't retell history with that kind of photography that supports those moments. This week's sponsor is the Calgary Foundation, proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. Everyone wants to feel a sense of belonging. Now more than ever, we are united by a desire to take action and help others by creating a community built on kindness and compassion. From small creative projects to larger citizen-led initiatives, the Calgary Foundation provides grassroots grants to encourage and support people who want to create and strengthen bonds between neighbors and communities. If you've got an idea to improve, enhance, or revitalize your community or neighborhood, visit calgaryfoundation.org to find out more about the Foundation's grant opportunities and visit Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube channel. Okay, so part one is in the books, and I feel like this has been a great conversation starter. We've learned so much, starting with Jennifer's obvious passion for art and photography and her keen awareness of its role in shaping public information. We've talked about two wars, the systematic defining of how women interact with each other, the problem of nationalist sentiment, and how it actually is a symptom of resistance to change. We've brought up the danger of social media and its inherent appeal to a lack of broad discourse and creating echo chambers. And we've asked about art and photography's role in all of this. I don't think we have answers. They're just broad concerns that are generational, perhaps. But there are also a lot of talking points here. For our part, I wonder how aware each of us must be about our own narratives and beliefs of how the world is and ought to be. Or perhaps it's better to not focus on that so much as to look for the humility to engage in conversations on those values, including seeking out contrary opinions so that in the long run and broader scale, the conversation itself can become culture forming. Are we trying too hard to impact the world as individuals, using a single viral tweet in amassing followers and likes? Or should we be reading and partaking in information that comes with citation and some balanced research? Again, I'm ending this with a lot of rhetoric without a single-minded purpose, but in the last few years particularly, I think these questions are necessary. Intellectual conflict is not new. It's part of the human experience to disagree with each other. I think the question is how do we disagree constructively instead of devolving into yelling matches or, at its worst, into another war. 
At the risk of negating all of these thoughts, I just want to finish by saying stay safe out there. Wear your fucking mask, sign up for a vaccine, let's get past this pandemic so that we can have these conversations in person, whether we're sitting in coffee shops or presenting them on a stage in front of hundreds of people. Let's work together so we can help broaden the discourse the world needs to keep adapting for the better, whatever that means. Do you have a bucket? Are you a bucket list person other than trying to find Ronald Reagan? But. I am an aggressive vision board maker oh. and curator. It's like my, yeah, I, I am, I'm big about it. Um, like at the top of my bucket list professionally would be, I would love to go to an organization like the UN um, and work for the World Food Program or, I mean, food insecurity was such an important part of my, my mother's upbringing that to see that even in this time on this planet, we still have people who suffer from food deserts and, and food insecurity and food instability and nutritional instability. It's just unconscionable to me. And so to to leverage the, the skills that I've learned to be able to contribute in that space. I'd love to work for Bill and Melinda Gates is the other one. I think that they're doing such pioneering work. And when I think about innovation and communications playing a role in innovation, man, would I ever be lucky to, to land there. But to be fair, at the very top of my bucket list is um, something very personal to me, and it's going to Italy. And the reason, I know it so, seems so simple, like book a trip and go to Italy, but I got doing this thing in my 20s where I felt I had to earn it. I felt like I had to earn it. So I, you know, I went to college and I didn't go then because I was like, no, I want to be the super studious. And then I was into my career and I was like, oh, if I, if I do really good in my career, like I'll earn a trip to Italy. And then it was, you know, then I got married and I was like, oh, if I can prove myself to be a super good wife, you know, uh, like we'll go to Italy. And then, you know, that doesn't work out. And you're like, well, maybe when I reinvigorate something. And I've always been asking for permission. Like think of the things I've done, you know, Hopkins, Harvard, Oxford, and I'm still asking for permission to go to Italy. Like I'm still trying to earn it. So this is it. This is, and I had the perfect window to go pre-COVID, like the perfect window. And I was like, no, I want to wait until I'm like, what, this entirely different person? I'm not sure. Like I'm, I always think of, um, now I'm digressing, but did you ever see that skit with Adam Sandler about being an Italy tour guide? No. And he's like, oh, so when Adam Sandler came back to SNL, he did this, um, this tour guide thing and he said like, you know, we're you know, we're happy to take you to Italy, but we just want to tell you that the you that you are today is still going to be the you that you are when you go to Italy. Like, it's important that you remember, like, this, it's the same you that's going to go there. So we can, we can, you know, take you on a hike, but we cannot make you the person that likes to go hiking. And we cannot, we can take your picture, but it's still going to be the you that you are in that picture. <laughs> so, like we can give you wine, but we can't control who you become when you drink that wine. And I think that maybe that's what Italy represents to me is, is it the, is it my best self that's going to go? And I know that people listening are probably just like, are you kidding? Like just book a ticket and go like, what is so hard? But I'm always, it, it's always at the center of my vision board. It's always this, like, I gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta go. COVID has made it very painful to think about like, but now I have to go. Now I have to go. Like, this is the thing. Have me back on and to ask me about my trip to Italy. And if I haven't, I would like the rest of the episode to just be you shaming me about it. Like, what is, what is the problem? Well, what is the problem? It'll be your post-COVID uh, treat. We should just, That's I mean, right. if, if Italy right. still exists after all of this if stuff. If Italy still, yeah, man, haven't they been, haven't they been harmed by, by COVID? My, what a, what a terrible circumstance for that country.